Good afternoon, everyone. Everyone belongs to a family in some sense or other. A family can be defined in various ways. One way a family may be defined is a group of people related by blood or marriage. And in general, this is how families are spoken of in Scripture. But there are some scriptures where a different or more general definition would apply. In some cases in scripture, especially in patriarchal times, a family might include household servants and concubines. A nuclear family is a more limited idea of family and is generally defined as married parents and their children. God created human beings for a specific purpose. He created them to fulfill a destiny for them that God had in mind before there were any humans. The concept of family is at the heart of God's purpose for humanity. And in today's sermon, I want to discuss the family in God's plan. The family in God's plan. When God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, He created them in His image, and in doing so, He created them as a family. As we read in Genesis 1, verse 27, Genesis 1 and verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So human beings were created male and female in the image of God as a family. And they were to be joined together as one unit. Even though they were two separate individuals that God had made, in Genesis 2 and verse 20, we read Genesis 2 beginning with verse 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he, that is God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So notice that the first pair of human beings, Adam and Eve, male and female, were uh, created sort of as a template for the rest of humanity as a family. And so it's typical for men and women as they become of age to marry and for a man to choose a wife, to be joined to the wife, and they become one flesh. And that has a, 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 a several different uh, ways that that applies that idea of one flesh. Of course, one way that they become one flesh is that they have the power to procreate and to reproduce offspring, which, which uh, the offspring come from the genetic material of both parents. And so as they reprodu reproduce in that sense, they literally become one flesh. But there are other ways in which that concept applies as well. And God told Adam and Eve that they were indeed to reproduce. 
They had been created with the power to procreate, to reproduce their own kind, and he told them to do that. In Genesis 1 and verse 28, Genesis 1 and verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This family unit, a pair of humans created in God's image, joined together as one flesh with the power to procreate or reproduce, reflects God's nature and his purpose for creating human beings. Remember, they were made in his image. They reflect the nature of God. They reflect the purpose for creating human beings. We read in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. Malachi 2 and verse 15, Did he not make them, that is, Adam and Eve, one? Did he not make them one? That is, one flesh? Having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. So here the question is asked, did not God make Adam and Eve one, one flesh? Having a remnant of the Spirit, in other words, having the power to create others out of the dust of the earth directly as he created Adam, but he didn't do that. He, he created one pair of humans, and then they had the power to produce offspring and why did he do that why did he do that it says because he seeks godly offspring god created adam and eve two people joined together as one flesh to produce godly offspring or as the darby translation reads seed of god whereas the lexham english bible reads offspring of god now, both of those meanings, godly offspring and offspring of God, either one of them or both of them actually is correct. Both apply. And this, in a nutshell, is the reason God created human beings and is the reason they were created as a family. Because God seeks offspring, godly offspring. Now, marriage in Scripture involves a man and a woman united as one. That's what marriage is. That's how it's defined in the Scriptures. In Mark 10 and verse 6, Mark 10 and verse 6, Jesus said, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The ideal in marriage is for the two to become so joined together, so closely knit together that they are as one. Two separate individuals, but one unit, one flesh. And the family unit, the results is the fundamental building block of a stable society. Once a man and woman are married to each other, they are to remain faithful to each other in their thoughts and in their conduct. Adultery and abusive conduct are forbidden by God's law. The two are to grow in love and devotion to one another. And that union is intended to last until death. Divorce is not permitted except under a very narrow range of circumstances 
that constitute unfaithful conduct on the part of one or both of the marriage partners. And essentially those circumstances are sexual infidelity and serious abuse or neglect of the marriage covenant responsibilities. Here's what the Britannica Concise Encyclopedia says in commenting about the family and this sort of extended definition of, of family, the family institution, what purpose it serves in society is, in my view, fairly well consistent with what the Bible itself teaches, even though it comes from a secular source, the Britannica Concise Encyclopedia. Here's what that source says about family as an institution. It says, the family as an institution provides for the rearing and socialization of children. In other words, the correct training and upbringing of children. And then it goes on to say the care of the aged, sick or disabled, the legitimation of procre procreation, and the regulation of sexual conduct in addition to supplying basic physical, economic, and emotional security for its members. Now, th these are purposes or functions that ideally are typical of the family institution. It provides for the rearing and socialization of children, the care of the aged, sick, or disabled, the legitimation of procreation and the regulation of sexual conduct in addition to supplying basic physical, economic, and emotional security for its members. And in a healthy society, a society with healthy families, this is ex exactly what the family institution will do for the society. The Bible provides specific instructions on how the members of a family are to carry out their responsibilities within the family unit. According to Scripture, the husband is the head of the family, and it is his responsibility to exercise a leadership role in seeing that all the needs of the members of the family are provided for. That's his role as head of the family, to, to exercise leadership in seeing that all the needs of the members of the family are provided for. And that means not only material needs, which certainly are to be considered, but also the emotional, the spiritual, and the educational needs. Husbands are to love and encourage their wives and see to their emotional and spiritual needs. And this is the charge that Scripture gives to husbands. In Ephesians 5, verse 28, Ephesians 5, verse 28, we see these instructions to husbands. It says... Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So husbands are required to love their wives, to love them as much as they, as they love themselves, if not more. And then in Colossians 3 and verse 19, Colossians 3 and verse 19, we see again the, these instructions. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. 
Love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. There should not be any bitterness or, or hatred or uh, ill will in a marriage. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, it says, Husbands, dwell with them, that is, with, with your wives. Husbands, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now notice that your whether God hears your prayers or not depends in part on the kind of relationship that you have with your wife, if you're a husband. That you are showing proper regard for your wife, honoring your wife as the weaker vessel, being heirs of the grace of life, considering her your partner in life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. And this applies more broadly than just in marriage, but it certainly applies in marriage. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Married couples should not be insulting one another or being overly critical or harsh in their judgment towards one another. They should not be trying to put down the other person in the marriage with crude remarks or ridicule and things of that sort. Goes on to say, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So these are specific instructions to husbands to, to, in how they are to fulfill their responsibilities in the marriage. Wives, on, for their part, are to acknowledge their husband's role as head of the family and work alongside with and with their husbands in a subordinate role as helpers to, to help the husband carry out his responsibilities. As we see in Colossians 3 and verse 18, Colossians 3 and verse 18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Notice it says, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The obligation for wives to submit to their husbands is not absolute, but it is only as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, if your husband asks or demands, if you're a wife and your husband asks or demands that you do something that is sinful, then you must put God first and refuse to obey your husband in that demand but obey God instead. Peter, when the Jewish authorities ordered him to disobey Jesus Christ, said in Acts chapter 5, we ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. And so it is with wives, or anybody for that matter actually, in dealing with authority figures, you always need to put God first before anyone else or any other authority. Now, it may be necessary in some cases to dissolve a marriage to preserve one's relationship with God. 
as we read in Matthew 19, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Notice implicit in this statement by Jesus Christ is that in some situations to serve God, to obey God, it may be necessary to leave one's wife. And the same principle would might apply in terms of a wife having to leave her husband to preserve her relationship with God. And this would be where the husband or wife objects to the spouse's relationship with God to the point that it makes it impossible to preserve the relationship and continue to follow God. This isn't, this should not be the usual thing that happens when one is converted, but it may be something that happens as, as a case of necessity in some, in some situations. And in Mark 10, verse 29, Mark 10 and verse 29, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age, and in the age to come eternal life. So there are circumstances where it may be necessary for a marriage to be dissolved for a person to preserve one's relationship with God. On the other hand, even in the face of difficulties with an unconverted mate, a Christian should make a genuine effort to preserve the marriage covenant with that mate. And this is addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 17, beginning with verse 10. 1 Corinthians 17, verse 10, Paul wrote to the married, I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, now this is speaking in this particular case of people who are a part of the church who are married to one another. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So every effort ought to be made to get along in the marriage properly. And if both individuals, each is doing his own or her own part in the marriage, that should be possible. But I've seen situations where the people involved were simply unable to get along with one another, and so they separated. But if that occurs, then it says that uh, the people who separate, being a part of the church and married, must not marry somebody else in that circumstances. In that circumstances, they are to be reconciled, if possible, or remain unmarried. Goes on to say, a husband is not to divorce his wife. These again, this is speaking of individuals in the church primarily. 
It goes on to say, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe. So here's a situation where one is converted and the other is not converted. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So if she wants to preserve the marriage relationship and she's willing to accommodate his faith and live together, then he is not to divorce her. And similarly, it says a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. It goes on to say, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not in, under bondage in such cases. Now, in some cases, when a person becomes converted, and I've seen this happen more than once, the mate objects so strongly to the person becoming a faithful Christian that he or she simply leaves or refuses to live together in peace and allow the marriage to survive. And so in that case, if the unbeliever departs, then it says a brother or sister is not under bondage or is not any longer bound to that mate in that particular instance. Going on in verse 16, it says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? I've seen circumstances where one mate was converted, the other was not, but they continued to live together, and sometimes years later, the other mate repents and decides to follow God and become a part of the church, and then they're both converted because the one was not necessarily trying to persuade the other to change his beliefs or become a, a Christian, but simply be fulfilling their responsibilities in the marriage, setting an example, uh, eventually sometimes that leads the other person to becoming converted. At least that's part of the formula. goes on to say, as God has distributed each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. So in other words, if you, if you are married to a person and you become converted, become a part of the church of God, you, you must do your best to preserve that marriage relationship as far as it's up to you to do so. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, we have uh, further instructions on this kind of relationship. It says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not converted, even if they do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, 
Do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging of the hair, wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So a wife should be submissive to her husband, allowing him to be the head of the family and not uh, resisting that, not trying to take over his role and conduct herself in a godly manner. This doesn't mean, by the way, that women cannot get their hair fixed or wear jewelry or things of that sort, as some have tried to use this scripture to make that uh, sort of uh, prohibition. It doesn't say that you should not wear any kind of jewelry. There are many scriptures that show that it is proper and right for women or men, for that matter, to wear jewelry in, a, in an appropriate way. But that should not be where the emphasis lies. What you're wearing, your, your life shouldn't be just bound up in, in fashion and clothing, what you're wearing, how you look, and things of that sort. What's more important, far more important to God, is what's on the inside. What kind of character you have. And as it says, a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in the sight of God. Now, the fact that a woman is told to be submissive to her husband doesn't mean that she's necessarily to be a doormat or that women are somehow inferior to men or less capable or, as some have thought, less intelligent than men. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything that would suggest women are less intelligent or less capable other than the, the fact that, that it points out they are generally weaker physically, have smaller frames and less muscle mass and so forth. That's just a physical fact. But there are many ways, ways that wives being submissive to their husbands can still express themselves, develop their talents and abilities, and they ought to do that. And you can read Proverbs 31 where it discusses the the model wife, so to speak, and how she uses her abilities and talents in many different ways to contribute to the stability and prosperity of her family, including owning her own business. And so women are not necessarily limited in the things that they can accomplish by the fact that they are to be submissive to their husbands. That is how the family, though, is to be structured from the standpoint of how it's regulated and governed. Uh, governed. Paul sums up the obligations of husbands and wives to one another in Ephesians 5, verse 33. Ephesians 5, verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you husbands in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Of course, they should love their husbands as well. And there are a number of specific ways that are pointed out in Scripture where those principles should be carried out. Parents of children 
are also to love, to provide for, and teach their children sound values. And they are required to discipline them as necessary to help them avoid pitfalls that could spell disaster. In Ephesians 6 and verse 4, Ephesians 6 and verse 4, it says, You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Notice the fathers are not to provoke their children, but they are to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. They're to teach them the values and the principles of God's word. In Colossians 3 and verse 21, Colossians 3 and verse 21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So fathers are not to provoke their children in the ways that that might be done. May, may be done in, through neglect, through overly harsh discipline, through ridicule, or it could be done in other ways. Anything that would be provocative in a, in a manner that causes discouragement and causes various problems, personality problems in the child should be avoided. On the other hand, fathers are to love their children, they're to nurture their children and teach their children as they grow, especially teaching them in spiritual principles with the aim of helping them become godly offspring. Now, of course, the same principle would apply to mothers too. Mothers can be guilty of some of these uh, sins, such as provoking their children. And mothers also have a role in teaching, educating, and training the children so that they reach the ideal outcome from God's standpoint, which is that they become godly offspring. God said of Abraham in Genesis 18 and verse 19, Genesis 18 and verse 19, God said of Abraham, I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. One reason that Abraham was blessed by God is because of the way he conducted his family responsibilities toward his wife and his children. And by the way, Abraham wasn't perfect, as you can see if you read through what it says about Abraham in the book of Genesis. But overall, he was faithful to God, and he instructed his son in the ways of God and evidently other children too, as he had other children after he had his first son, Isaac. Actually, he had, a, had another son of his wife's concubine before he had Isaac, but that was the first son of his wife. Parents are to set an example of obedience to God for their children, and they're to teach them God's laws. One of the most important ways, by the way, that anyone can teach others is by setting the right example. If you're not setting the example, uh, your words turn out to be pretty hollow and your example often speaks louder than words. 
But parents are to set an example of obedience to God and teach those principles to their children. God said to the people of Israel as they were about to enter the land that God had promised them, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5, Moses said to them, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. Notice he said you're to observe those statutes that had been given to them through Moses from God. Be careful to observe them. So they were to set the example by living by those laws. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. So they were charged with not only obeying those laws, but also passing that information down to their children and even to their grandchildren, teaching them what is right in the sight of God. That's part of a parent's responsibility. There are many examples in the book of Proverbs of how a father might teach his children, and it would be good to encourage your children to read the Scriptures regularly, in fact, daily, and especially the book of Proverbs as they are growing up. And, of course, mothers can use the same idea in, in teaching the children as well. But the book of Proverbs is full of instructions. In fact, much of it was written specifically to teach children the principles of God's word and his laws and we can we can all learn from it because in one sense we're all children we're certainly all children of god or children of somebody not only god but parents uh, physical parents as well or we wouldn't be here but we can all learn from the book of proverbs and that's an excellent book for children to read especially some of the other books of the bible might be somewhat more difficult for them to relate to but there's plenty in the book of Proverbs principles that children would do well to learn to apply in their own lives, even while they're very young. For their part, children are required to honor and obey their parents. Their instructions for every member of the family, specific instructions for each of the family members in the Bible, including children, and children are required to honor and obey their parents. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. In Colossians 3 and verse 20. Colossians 3 and verse 20, it says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, again, the obligation to obey is limited to obedience to those commands that are in keeping with God's Word. 
Even children should not obey their parents if their parents are asking them to do something that is contrary to God's laws. As we read in Ephesians 6 and verse 1, Ephesians 6 and verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, as long as it is consistent with God's laws, His commandments, His will, then you must obey your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, it goes on to say, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Children who apply this law, who obey it, are more likely to live not only a happier life, but also a longer life. Many of the things that parents teach their children are intended to help them avoid accidents, avoid getting into trouble, getting into problems that might not only uh, cause them sorrow and misery, but might, in fact, lead to their early deaths. In Proverbs 17, verse 17, it says, The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will, will eat it. The idea of this proverb is that a child who disrespects his parents will likely suffer calamity as a result. And so it is not only advisable but required from God's standpoint for children to respect and obey their parents. And in general, younger members of a family or a nation ought to show properly, proper respect toward their elders. This is a principle of God's word. In Leviticus 19, verse 32, Leviticus 19, verse 32, it says, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. And this is a, principle of God's word that is more and more disregarded in our society where the elderly are often disrespected and there is a great deal of contempt often for people who are older when according to God's word we ought to respect the elderly and of course elderly people should conduct themselves in a way that would not make it difficult to respect them but this is something that we all should practice to respect elderly people, even even uh, elderly people who may be senile, who may be having uh, uh, problems, uh, cognitive problems and things like that, still should be shown properly re proper respect. Not that you necessarily have to listen to nonsense, but uh, you owe the elderly that kind of respect, elderly parents especially. Jesus upbraided the Jewish leaders of his day for their tradition through which they sought to excuse neglect of their duty to honor their parents. In Mark 7 and verse 9, Mark 7 and verse 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit 
you might have received from me as Corban, that is a gift to God, then you do no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So they had their way of of rationalizing the failure to practice their responsibility to honor their fathers and mothers. Now, these admonitions that we've been reading concerning various members of the family are designed to provide an environment where every member of the family can thrive and grow, where every member of the the family can thrive and grow, where every member of the family can develop godly character. Because remember, the ultimate purpose of the family, as we've seen, is to produce godly offspring. The purpose is to produce godly offspring. And these instructions we we read about the obligations of family members are designed to lead to that result. Ultimately, the family is intended to be a microcosm of God's kingdom or God's family. And what God intends to do through human beings, you might say through the human family, is to create an enlarged family of his own. What God intends to do through a human being is, is to create an enlarged family of his own, the family of God. Now, the world has been deceived about the nature of God. Cultures the world over have been taught to worship idols, to worship images, to worship gods of their own imaginations. And this false worship blinds them to the true nature of God. They have been taught a false concept of God. One of those false concepts is that God is a trinity, which implies that God is a, is a closed Godhead that obviates the idea of God reproducing himself with children sharing his nature. The trinity doctrine and other false concepts of God's nature obviates the idea of God reproducing himself with children who share his nature. The false concepts of idolatrous worship, which are deceptions of Satan the devil, have hidden from most people an understanding not only of the true nature of God, but have also deceived most of mankind about their own nature and about their potential destiny. God is not a trinity, but God is a family. And I won't go into detailed discussion about the Trinity doctrine in this sermon, but we have an article about it posted on our website, cogmessenger.org, for anyone who's interested. But the Bible reveals that there are currently two members of the Godhead. These are divine beings who are eternal, self-existing, and together are responsible for the creation of the universe and everything in it, and who rule it. The dual nature of the Godhead Godhead is expressed in a number of scriptures. One of them, one of them makes it very clear that the dual nature of the Godhead is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, where it says, Yet for us there is one God. Yes, there is one God. For us there is one God. Now, then Paul here 
writing to the Corinthians, goes on to tell us what that one God consists of. There's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. The Godhead, as is expressed in this and other scriptures, is comprised of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Metaphors pertaining to family roles are often used in scripture to reveal how these two beings relate to one another and to human beings. Jesus Christ, the human being Jesus Christ, was in fact a member of the Godhead who temporarily gave up his divine power and glory to become a flesh and blood human being for the salvation of mankind. He did it so that human beings could become full members of the divine family as children of God. And so we read in John 1 and verse 1, John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now notice in the scripture, it tells us that the word, as it's referred to here, Greek word logos actually, was both with God and was God. The word was with God and the word was God. Through the word, also it tells us that every created thing was made. And that word spoken of here is the person of Jesus Christ. We're reading Ephesians 3 and verse 9. Ephesians 3 and verse 9. God created all things through Jesus Christ. Now going on in John 1 and verse 10. John 1 and verse 10. Speaking of Jesus Christ. It says he was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. That is, they did not acknowledge, they did not understand who he was. Goes on to say he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God and the Word became flesh, the Word that was God, and the Word that was with God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice here we have two beings who are spoken of as God here, the Word, which became flesh, and the other being the Father. And in becoming flesh, Jesus Christ, it says, was begotten of the Father through some miraculous process. Through that process, which we do not understand, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that we don't understand, but we're told what happened. But somehow through a miraculous process, this eternal spirit being 
who was God, developed or became a seed planted in the womb of a woman named Mary to develop into a human male person. And Christ, the Word, who was God, emptied himself of his divinity temporarily to become flesh. As we read in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was God, one of the beings in the Godhead, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in verse 7, where it says he made himself of no reputation, a number of translations render these words, he emptied himself, and he emptied himself is a more literal translation of the Greek. The Montgomery translation renders the same words, he emptied himself of his glory, the Weymouth translation says he stripped himself of his glory. The Father referred to in verse 11 as the other person of the Godhead and the only being or entity anywhere not subject to Jesus Christ in his glorified state is the one referred to here in many other scriptures as the Father. Now notice that the relationship between these two beings are described by terms associated with family. Scripture says that God the Father puts all things under the feet, so to speak, of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. He has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when, he, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Ultimately, all of those who are left, when all is said and done, will be a part of the God family. God will be all in all and everyone will be subject to Jesus Christ except the Father. Now, Jesus Christ is spoken of often as the Son. And again, the relationship between the two members of the Godhead is characterized as a family relationship, a father-son relationship. Numerous scriptures in the New Testament refer to God the Father and Jesus Christ as the divine pair. And Jesus often spoke of himself as the Son and referred to God in heaven as his Father. It was Jesus Christ, the Word or spokesman for the Godhead who has represented God on the earth. At various times, he appeared to men, particularly men such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and some others. Jesus said in John 1 and verse 18, 
John 1 and verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And in John 6 and verse 46, Jesus said, not that anyone has seen the Father except He who is from God. He has seen the Father. It was Jesus Christ as the eternal God who led the people of Israel through the wilderness. As we read in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were, were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now we read earlier that those who believe in Jesus Christ can become children of God. In John 1 and verse 12, John 1 and verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, the word translated were born in verse 13 here, where it says who were born not of blood and so forth. The Greek word is ganao, and it is in this case in the arrowist tense, which is indefinite with regard to time. And in this case, the word would be better translated who are born. Who are born. Becoming a spiritual child requires a conversion of the heart and mind, which is likened to a new birth. Jesus said in John 3 and verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3 and verse 3. Now this new birth... The spiritual transformation, that is conversion, involves repenting of one's sins and becoming baptized. Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 38, Acts 2 and verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When one is repents and is baptized, he is symbol symbolically be put to death and buried and resurrected to a newness of life, as we read in Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. In some scriptures, Jesus is spoken of as the firstborn from the dead. And baptism is uh, a symbolic reenactment re of, of that process where we become in a sense, born again and a new entity as far as God is concerned. With repentance and God's Holy Spirit, we're given a new mind. 
wherein we can, with God's help, understand more deeply the truth of God's word and obey it. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 18, verse 30, it says, Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That's what conversion is. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn or repent and live. Those who genuinely repent and obey God, no longer being deceived and living according to the flesh and the ways of the world, become children of God in a spiritual sense. They become the godly offspring that God seeks. As we read in Romans 8, verse 14, Romans 8, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, in one sense, of course, everyone, every human being is a child of God, but this is, this is in the sense of being, becoming a godly seed, the final end product of what God is seeking through humanity. We are to become sons of God, the godly seed that God seeks. Those who have received God's Holy Spirit through repentance and baptism become eligible as children of God for an inheritance, an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. As we read in Romans 8, verse 11, Romans 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if you have God's spirit dwelling in you in the sense of being converted and changed, born again in the sense that we discussed earlier, then you have also the promise of, of the resurrection wherein you are no longer, longer limited by mortality. Yes, you will die. Your physical body will die. But then you will be resurrected at some point. In Romans 8, verse 16, Romans 8, verse 16, it says the Spirit Himself, or itself as it would be better translated, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. In other words, as Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and glorified, through that resurrection, then we also can experience that same type of thing. Goes on in verse 18 to say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans 
and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption or the sonship, as it would be better translated, the redemption of our body. Individually, those who have been genuinely converted and received the Spirit of God are children of God, as we just read. Collectively, the church of God is comprised of those same converted people who are children of God, having been born again, so to speak. And the church itself is the bride of Christ. The church collectively is the bride of Christ that Jesus Christ is married and of which he is the bridegroom. So we have here another metaphor involving family relationships. The family relationship of a wife to a husband is used of the relationship of the church to Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed, or as it is in the King James Version, I have espoused. The Greek word is hermazo, which means to join in marriage. That's what espoused means, to, to be joined in marriage. Paul says, I have betrothed or espoused, I've joined you in marriage to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church stands in the relationship to Jesus Christ as a wife to her husband. In Ephesians 5 verse 22, Ephesians 5 verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also, also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved or loves the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Notice that just as the husband and wife are joined together to become one flesh, it says we, speaking of the church, are members of Jesus Christ, members of his body, of his flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Notice the relationship of husband to wife is modeled after what, what Christ's relationship with the church is. 
in the Bible, the thousand-year period following the second coming of Jesus Christ, when the faithful children of God will have been resurrected, is likened to a wedding feast, which typically lasted seven days in ancient Israel. And we read this in Matthew 22 and verse 1. Matthew 22 and verse 1, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Notice it says the kingdom of heaven. That's speaking of the time when Christ is ruling on the earth. Really in the kingdom of God on earth is like, is like a king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Now, what is this talking about? It is speaking of a marriage feast, a wedding feast. As it says here, the, the, the oxen, the fatted cattle are killed. Everything's ready for the feast. The word translated wedding in this case means a wedding feast. We read this from word pictures in the New Testament by A.T. Robertson where he comments on Matthew 22 and verse 2. He says, quote, a marriage feast and the Greek word is gamos. A marriage feast, gamos, the plural as here, is very common in the papyri for the wedding festivities, the several acts of feasting, which lasted for days. Seven in Judges 14, verse 17. So what it is speaking here is a wedding feast. That period, that thousand-year millennial rule of Christ is characterized as a wedding feast and it will begin following the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we read in Isaiah 25, verse 6, Isaiah 25, verse 6, In this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow and well-refined wines on the lees. Now, those who have remained faithful, who have been converted, remain faithful, overcoming the world, their own fleshly nature, and Satan's influence will be resurrected at the time of Jesus Christ's coming and will be sons of God and his eternal kingdom. As we read in Revelation 21 and verse 7, Revelation 21 and verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. All of those in the first resurrection and others converted later will be part of the divine family of God, sharing God's nature as human beings share the nature of their own parents. As we read in first, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, 2 Peter 1, beginning with verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, 
that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Notice not just partakers of human nature, but that we may be partakers of the divine nature. In other words, children of God in the fullest sense possible. Children born into God's family from the dead through the resurrection as spirit beings sharing the nature of the Father and Jesus Christ. That's what God is aiming at through having created the human family. The family is at the heart of God's purpose for mankind. You were created so that you might become a part of the divine family of God. <laughs>